Acts so that we can better understand uh, the, the life of Paul and those things that we learned in the book of Acts and better understand where he was and how, why he wrote the letters that he wrote. And so we've been looking at them, overlaying them chronologically, looking at those letters. We've looked at the, the letter to the Galatians. We've looked at, at Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And we've looked at his letters to the, to the Corinthians. And then recently we've been looking at his letter to the Romans. And those letters were all taking place during his missionary journeys. So it was on, on his, his uh, third missionary journey when he, when he was writing, exchanging those letters with the people of Corinth and, and finally settled that, that hardship that had come in their relationship between he and the church in Corinth and settled. He settled then in Corinth for the winter. And he wrote, uh, while he settled in Corinth during that winter, that's when he wrote his letter to, to the Roman church, saying that he was looking forward to coming, to being with them, uh, and sharing the basics of the faith with the people of Rome, because he had not been there, and he was sharing his message with them. Following that winter in Corinth, then, on his third missionary journey, Paul begins to head back to Jerusalem. They've taken an offering. They've, they're, he's ready to go back to Jerusalem to take that offering from all of the churches to Jerusalem. And so uh, he, he begins to head back and he takes this roundabout journey because there's a plot to kill Paul. You can see these, this story in Acts chapter 20. There's a plot to kill Paul. And so he takes this roundabout journey and he wants to stop and visit with the people of Ephesus because he has been in Ephesus previously for about three years. So he wants to stop and visit with the leaders of the church, but he knows if he stops and goes into Ephesus, back into the city that he had been in, uh, that he would be swarmed with people, it would be difficult for him to leave, and so he calls the leaders of the church and he brings them out to another island and he meets with them there and shares with them his last thoughts. It's important for him to meet with the leaders of the church, but he doesn't want to get involved in all the things that would happen if he were to go back into the city. And so he meets with them, and in Acts chapter 20, he gives those elders, the leaders of the Ephesian church, uh, this, great, this great testimony of instruction on how they are to lead the church and how they are to care for the flock and how they are to live lives of generosity. And he shares all that with them because he loves, he loves the people of Ephesus. He loves the church in Ephesus. He, he, he has lots and lots of connections there. Priscilla and Aquila, the, the, the couple that he worked with both in Corinth and uh, in, in uh, Ephesus uh, are there. He sent Timothy to minister to the church in Ephesus. He loves the people of Ephesus. He shares with the elders and then he continues on and travels on to Jerusalem. And you know that as Paul gets to Jerusalem, things don't turn out exactly the way that he had hoped. And he ends up being arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. Uh, he's under, kept under lock and key under the Roman authorities for several years there awaiting freedom. And finally, he requests a trip to go to Rome because he wants to appeal his case before Caesar. And so he does. He finally makes a trip to Rome, but not the way that he had planned or the way that he had hoped he makes the trip, he has a shipwreck, all of those things we, we read in Acts and you can, can read in Acts. But he finally gets to Rome and he's under lock and key. He's chained to a guard in house arrest. He can have visitors that can come in and see him and, and he does have a number of visitors during that time in Rome. 
Uh, but, but he's under lock and key, he's not able to leave, and it's during that time that he's locked up in Rome that he writes this group of letters that we come to next. He writes Ephesians, he writes Colossians, he probably writes Philippians and Philemon, all right there in those two years that he's locked up in Rome, awaiting trial with Caesar um, and, and waiting to see what's going to happen. And so he writes these letters. These letters are different than the other letters that we have looked at so far. He wrote Galatians to the churches in Galatia, specifically about circumcision. He wrote specifically to the Thessalonians about things that were happening there. He wrote specifically to the church in Corinth about things that were happening in that church, naming people in the church and things that were going on that needed to be addressed in that church. He wrote to Rome, again, uh, an entirely different letter. He wrote to the church in Rome, uh, a group of people he had never met, or many of which he had never met, and shared with them how they could be united together in the faith. And now this letter is another different variety. This is a letter that he has written to the church in Ephesus. He, he writes that right away in the very first part, the first chapter of Ephesus. He writes to the people of Ephesus, but he also wants them to send it around. He wants them to pass this letter around to other churches. And the same with the, church, with the letters to the Philippians and to Colossians. He wants them to read it, and then he wants them to pass it around in a circuit to all of the other churches. So this letter, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, is written not just for the church in Ephesus, but for churches in general. He specifically wrote it in that time to those people but it has great application for us today, even here. It may have been written for the Ephesians, but it's very applicable for the Richlandites as well. You can see that this letter was meant to be passed around because his greeting is a little more generic, and he doesn't. If you remember at the end of, of the book of Romans, he has a long list of people that he wants greetings to be sent to and shared with. He names everybody he can think of that might be in the church of Rome. But here, he doesn't do that because these, this is not just specific to the Ephesian church. He doesn't list all of the people that he might know in Ephesus, but instead wants it to be passed around and so doesn't have those kinds of closing closing on this letter, because Paul loved, he loved the people of Ephesus. He loved the church in Ephesus. So in order to look, I think, at this book, I think you have to be, we have to be reminded, and I don't have a lot of time to do this this morning. I, I would love to, because I love these stories. But I want to remind you of some of the things that happened in Acts. You can even flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, um, and you'll be reminded of some of the things that happened while Paul, again, he spent three years. He spent three years in Ephesus. He gets to, he gets to Ephesus. In fact, he, he, he had stopped in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, if you remember, and, and needed to get back to Jerusalem. And so he, he, he went back to Jerusalem and, and checked in with the disciples and, and then basically left and raced right back to Ephesus. He wanted to spend some time in that city. He wanted to plant a church in Ephesus. He wanted to spread out um, around in Asia from the church in Ephesus. And so, so he, he comes and he sets up in the synagogue like he always does in, in each city. He sets up in the synagogue and begins to teach there and, and begins to get in trouble like he always does in the synagogue. And so Paul leaves and then takes on, goes to another house and begins to teach there regularly, probably every afternoon. Paul is teaching. He's, he's, he's making tents 
working again with Priscilla and Aquila. He's making tents during the day, but, but speaking in the afternoons and, and sharing with people in the city of Ephesus. And a number of things happen, a number of, of awesome stories happen while Paul is there in Ephesus. In fact, do you remember that there's a story about the sons of Sceva? They, there's seven sons that, that uh, come and they take Paul's uh, handkerchiefs. They take his sweatbands, basically, from when he's been working uh, on the tents. And they take those and they want to go be a part of, of this whole exorcism by Jesus' name phenomenon that's happening in Ephesus. And so, so they go, they go to this demon-possessed person and they, they take his sweatbands, they take his aprons, and, and they're going to... to cast out the demons in Jesus' name. And when they get there, if you remember the story, they get there and, and they, they go to cast out the demons and the demon responds back to them. The person responds back to them and they say, Jesus, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And then, if you remember the rest of the story, the demon jumps up and lays a whooping on all seven men. And I told you that day, a, a, a line I loved from Matt Chandler was that if you enter into a fight with your pants on and you exit with your pants off, you lost. That's what happened here. These guys lost. But there's also some other stories about some believers, some people who really loved Jesus in the church in Ephesus but had some other things that they were holding on to. They talked specifically about, about witchcraft and some, some things that they were dabbling in that, that they didn't want to give up. A large number of the church, it says. That there were believers who loved Jesus, but they still treasured some of their past. They still treasured some of their sin. They loved Jesus, but they loved the culture of their city, this cosmopolitan, Los Angeles-like city in Asia. They loved Jesus, but they loved their sin as well. And all of a sudden, they've been hearing Paul speak, they've been hearing Paul share, and they realize they cannot live this double life any longer. And so, they begin to confess and they begin to repent, and in fact, they have this huge, large book bonfire book burning uh, burning up what today would be about $10 million probably in, in witchcraft books and, and different spell books that they had there. And they realized, the church in Ephesus, these believers realized that following, following after the way, following after Jesus, they had to live lives of holiness. They had to tell the truth about God in their lives. The church in Ephesus was dear to Paul's heart. Right in the center of the city of Ephesus stood this temple to the goddess Artemis, if you remember this part of the story. Artemis was the, was, is the, the twin of Apollo. She's the daughter of Zeus. She's the goddess of animals and creation. She is known and worshipped for her fertility. And legend said... Legend said that Artemis fell from the sky and landed in Ephesus. And so the people of the city of Ephesus, 
had to, uh, it, it became their responsibility to watch over her, to protect her, to, to worship her. She came to them and it was their duty and their responsibility to take care of her. And so in response, in response to this duty that they've been given, that they feel they've been given, they, they build this gigantic temple of Artemis. It's 450 feet long, it's 225 feet wide, it's 60 feet tall, it's held up by 120 marble columns. It was magnificent. It was beautiful. In fact, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. And it sat right there in the city of Ephesus. As Paul is there, as he's, as he's speaking and teaching and, and preaching to these young believers, as the church in Ephesus is beginning to grow, it's doing it all in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. And Paul is beginning to talk to them about how, as we said in Romans, how we too often worship created things rather than the creator that we turn our eyes to things of this earth and this world instead of things of above. And so the church in Ephesus begins to hear that and they begin to respond to that. They begin to turn away from the goddess Artemis. They begin to turn away from, from the worship at the temple of Artemis. And as that happens, the city of, of Ephesus, they begin to notice the worship is changing. The tenor of the city is changing and, and people are no longer worshiping in the way that they were. And so there's a story in Acts 19 about a man named Demetrius. He creates idols. He's a silversmith. And he creates idols specifically probably to Artemis and to the worship that was happening there. And he would sell them to the people that would come to Ephesus so that they might worship the goddess Artemis on their own and might have a, a token or an idol of some kind that they could worship with. And he gets upset. And he says, this preaching that Paul has, this preaching is, is it, it's hurting my business. For one, it's threatening, it's threatening our goddess. And he, when Paul says that these handmade gods aren't really gods. And it's robbing, he says, it's robbing our goddess Artemis of her glory. People, people are attacking Artemis, is what Demetrius says. And there begins to be this uproar. They gather together in this gigantic theater. They gather together and the whole city begins to gather. And they begin to just chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And there's a couple of early believers, Gaius, Aristarchus, they're drug in before the, before the crowd and it looks like they could be killed. And Paul if you remember, Paul wants to run in. He wants to, he wants to defend those Christians. He wants to try to speak to the crowd. He wants to try to persuade them. But instead, Paul's friends grab him and they haul and they, they keep him away. They say, you cannot go in. You'll be killed if you were to go in. And they keep him from going in. And for two hours, for two hours, the people chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Finally, after two hours of that chant over and over and over, a clerk from the city comes in and settles down the crowd and basically says to the crowd, he says, listen, listen, everybody knows Artemis. Nothing, nothing is going to fade her glory. There is nothing that this man can say 
that's going to fade the glory of our great goddess Artemis. And that finally subdues and settles the crowd down and the riot is over. And I shared with you as we walked through the book of Acts that what we know today, what Paul and those early Ephesian believers were just beginning to understand, but what was completely and totally lost on the crowd chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What was lost on the people like Demetrius was that this once great magnificent temple would someday be gone. It would barely exist. And that the fable or the memory of Artemis would be lost to history but that we have a God, not made by human hands, but we have a God who before the foundation of the world has chosen us and has given us every spiritual blessing through Jesus Christ. Not because he fell from earth and landed there and needed a temple built around him, but instead lives and works in his people. This is how he says it in Ephesians chapter one. Starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus from his prison, his house arrest prison in Rome. And he writes to a people who he loves, who have come out of darkness. He'll say that a couple different times. They have come out of darkness. They have come out of the shadow of the temple of Artemis and the worship of Artemis. They have come out of of witchcraft and spell-binding slavery. They have come out of that darkness and that spiritual corruption. And he writes this letter to remind them of the truths of what they have already learned. He spends these first three chapters that we're gonna look at today quickly. He spends these first three chapters reminding them first of who God is and then second of who they were, the people of Ephesus were. And then thirdly, he reminds them of whom God has made them into. His last three chapters we'll look at next week Paul then takes those lessons about who they are in God, who they are in Christ, and what they are to do with that, how they are to live, how they are to be impacted and motivated in their behavior. Those are chapters 4, 5, and 6 in the book of Ephesians. But in these first three chapters, Paul tells us about who God is, who we were, and who we are in him. I want you to look just at that first chapter, chapter 1 in Ephesians It's page 976 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. He starts starts with his typical greetings to the church in Ephesus. And then he has this poem, starting right in verse 3. He has this kind of poem, this kind of lyrical riff that he does to remind them of who God is. They're coming, they're standing in the shadow of the temple. They're they're standing in a city that that worships a goddess. That chance great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And he wants to remind them of who the one true God is. And he does that starting in verse 3. It's, it's amazing here, from verse 3 to 14, Paul writes here and, and tells them who God is by showing who they are in God. But it's really all about God. It's only four sentences in these verses. Let's look at them together. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are about God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's sentence number two. In love, he, again, this is about God, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Sentence next, the next sentence, seven. In him, this is about God, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, in which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then he continues on in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In the shadow of the temple of Artemis. In a city where the entire, not the entire, but a, a much of the economy is tied to the creation of man-made idols, Paul reminds them this is the one true God. Blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This is who he is. In love, he's predestined. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have obtained inheritance. In him, in him, we have the gospel of our salvation. It's all about God. In him. And then, Paul continues on. He tells us all about God, and then he tells us about us. He says it in chapter 2. You see it there. And you... The other verses were in him, in him, in him. Now here in chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Starts by reminding the Ephesians of who God is, and then reminds them of who they have been. 
They were dead in their trespasses and sins. We talk about sin a lot here at Richland on purpose because Paul talks about it a lot. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Just this week, I heard a pastor talking about our sin and, and the, the deadness that we have in our trespasses and sins. And, and the definition that he used talking about our depravity was that we, we were lost in sin. And then he said this, he said we were lost in sin and we liked it and we loved it. And that's exactly right. I hadn't thought about it that way. And yet, yet the definition that I use all of the time is that we were lost in our sin and selfishness. I, 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 selfishness is sin, but for me that paints the picture of sin, that we, we like it to be our own way, we want our own way, and, 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 and we love it that way. That's sin, that we want our own way. And no one has to teach us or train us in that way. We know it from the start. No one teaches a baby to want their own way. They just know it. We're wired that way. It's the, it's the original sin that we get from Adam. Sin came through one man, Paul told us in Romans. Came through Adam to all people. And we were dead in our sin. We were dead and we didn't know it. We were dead, but we loved it. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And we were by very nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Our sin, the wages of our sin is death. Our sin leads us to separation from God. And so Paul, right here, even, even in this book to the church, he says, this is who God is. In him we have all these things, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were children of wrath. But, verse 4, chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no man may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand and we should walk in them. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath but God. But God, rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive with Christ. That's our hope. That was the hope for the Ephesians. That was the hope for those that stood in the shadow of that temple. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Paul reminds the Ephesian church of who God is. He reminds them of who they were. And then he continues on to tell them about who 
God has made us. He has made us alive together with Christ. He continues on into chapter three, continuing on telling us about what God has done through Jesus for us. That there's this mystery, he says in chapter three, there's this mystery that's been hidden for for all of history that God is reconciling sinners, including Gentiles, Paul says, and reminds the people in Ephesus. It's this mystery that's been hidden. God is reconciling sinners, including Gentiles, to himself through Jesus. You see it in chapter 3. Look at just verse 17 and 18 and 19. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He wants us to know this mystery, that God is redeeming his people and bringing his people, bringing his people together. Paul wants the Ephesians to know who, the people of Ephesus to know who God is. He wants them to know who they were, but more than anything, he wants them to know the way that God is at work in them, moving them from death to life, moving them through being rich in mercy, moving them to being alive together with Christ. It's by grace that we've been saved. Paul will continue on in this book. We'll look at it next week a bit more. He will continue on. And you can see it in in chapter 4 if you just look at the very first verse of chapter 4. So it says, therefore, these first things, chapters 1, 2, and 3, these things that we have learned about God and about us and about what God is doing in us, making us alive in Christ. Therefore, he says in chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Paul doesn't just give them this great news about Jesus, but says, now that you know that, here's the way that you are to be called. Here's the way that you are to walk. Here's where you are to go. He has this great, we'll look at it next week, but he has these these great illustrations in 4, 5, and 6 of the things that we are to take off and the things that we are to put on. The things that we are to throw away from that dead, sinful nature where we were dead in our trespasses and the things that we are to put on with this new nature that God has worked in us through Jesus. So next week, we'll look at those, those, those verses. Today, we want to close today with communion together. We want to close being reminded we were dead in our trespasses, but we have been made alive through Jesus. The worship team is going to come and lead us. The elders will lead us in communion this morning. We have an invitation, though. It's on the screen. It's also in your bulletin. We have open communion here at Richland, and some of you this morning are visiting with us and and may want to know, can I partake? Can I be a part of this communion celebration? Can I remember together with this church body that I was dead in my sins and trespasses, but I have been made alive in Christ. And the answer is, if you can live under this invitation, then yes, we want you to celebrate with us. If you have placed the full weight of your hope in Jesus and can live under this invitation, we want you to share with us. We know, too, that as, 
Oftentimes, as you visit a place, you may not feel comfortable in that, and that's okay. There's no requirement for you to partake in communion with us this morning. The way, the function of how we do that this morning is in just a little bit. The elders will come and they will uh, have each pew uh, file out and down to the table. There's two cups when you get here uh, that are stacked on top of each other. We invite you to take both of those cups. The bottom cup holds the bread. The top cup holds the juice. And to take that back to your seat and then we will take that communion together. If you are uncomfortable, you can sure file through with your pew, but you don't have to take the elements if you don't want to. If you're even uncomfortable doing that, you're welcome to stay in your pew and in your seat. If you'd like to be served communion, you can also let the elder know that, and uh, they will make sure that they serve you there in your seat if you're unable to come forward. But let me invite the elders and the worship team to come forward this morning and to serve us in communion. We'll take it together and share in communion together. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember 
He drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of the King. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth as we share in his sufferings we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the bread represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Take and eat. Be grateful. This represents the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for our sins. Take and drink and be reminded of his sacrifice. Let me invite you to stand for our benediction today. Our benediction comes here at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians. Paul says, just before he moves on to how we are to live, he says, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.